to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Leah West, and I'm back for part two of our National Security Case Roundup with Jessica Davis and Michael Nesbitt. Thank you guys for coming back to join me. It's so great to see you again. Thank you, Leah. See you too. In this update episode, we're going to talk about all of your favorite national security cases that have seen some updates in the past couple of months. Um, There's been a number, not just terrorism offenses, but also offenses under the Security of Information Act. And that's where I really want to start. I want to start with the Ortiz case. So Jess, do you want to remind us about what this case involves? Cameron Ortiz was arrested I guess it was just a little over a year ago now, he was a director general with the RCMP and he worked in one of the most sensitive areas in the RCMP in terms of coordinating intelligence for the RCMP. And so he's been charged with a number of different counts. That's right. He was charged with 14 different counts. Most of them under the Security of Information Act, some of them under the criminal code for a breach of trust and uh, mischief with a computer. But for the most part, he's been accused of sharing information, so special operations information that, you know, is really highly classified information with either a foreign entity or with other individuals. And we know one of those individuals, or it's been reported, was someone who was actually arrested by the FBI and involved in organized crime. Jess, I know you've talked about this in the past, about how this could have serious implications for Canada's security establishments and our relationship with partners. Has there been any notable fallout from any of Canada's partners or allies as a result of these allegations? It's really difficult for us to know that because we're on the outside now. So this is not the kind of information that the government would be willingly sharing in terms of any fallout from partners. So we really have no sense of whether or not that's a problem at the moment. But we do know some new things that are running in parallel to the actual criminal procedures. Two things have taken place. First, we know that there was an independent report done by Alphonse McNeil, who used to be an assistant commissioner with the RCMP. And we also know that there is now a new lawsuit proceeding in civil court related to Mr. Ortiz's behavior. And Jess, do you want to cover what's alleged with respect to Ortiz and his behavior in that civil lawsuit? A civil lawsuit covers an awful lot of ground, but the basics are really that he engaged in targeted harassment and demeaning behavior towards his subordinates during the time when these alleged leaks were taking place. Now, the interesting thing in the civil lawsuit that we saw was that it actually cites part of that report, that internal report that you were talking about, and says that Cameron Ortis deliberately targeted those specific employees in order to take their work and that some of that work is what was shared with the probably criminal entities here. And so that was really interesting. So you have somebody now who's been charged and alleged to have shared special operational information and then also engaging in this targeted harassment campaign. So those were some the, the basics in terms of what the most interesting parts of that case were. The other piece, though, is that it also talks a little bit about the internal investigations that's been ongoing and actually talks about several investigations. So we now have information that suggests that there's been more than one investigation probably run in parallel to look at different elements of this, the problems in the, in the RCMP. 
just reading here, it says the plaintiffs have been advised by investigators connected with the RCMP's internal investigation that the RCMP now believes that Mendoza systematically targeted them and attacked their careers as part of his larger plan to misappropriate their work and use it for personal gain. So is this consistent with what we would expect to see with an insider threat? Does that raise any concerns or is this just a, a remarkable case? I don't know that we have really good typologies of what's normal in an insider threat case. It does make a little bit of sense from a behavioral perspective, just in the sense of trying to sideline anybody who may be in a position to criticize or draw concerns about uh, an individual's behavior. But there's so little information, especially in terms of dealing with law enforcement or security services, in terms of what happens during an insider threat process, that to say whether or not it's normal or not is going to be really difficult. But guess then the real concern is not so much that these allegations should have tipped anybody off in terms of his potential selling of secrets, but the sheer fact that there was someone in a managerial position treating people like this and it wasn't taken seriously by the RCMP. Is that the appropriate thing to take away from this? I worked in the government for an awfully long time, and this is the kind of thing that was unfortunately all too common. Not necessarily the insider threat piece, I would say that was fortunately (laughs) not common, but this kind of behavior or this kind of reaction to managerial behavior. I don't want to make any judgments about whether or not the the harassment and demeaning activity actually took place, but it is something that occurs on a regular basis or is perceived to occur by employees. So it doesn't really surprise me when I saw these allegations. It can be the result of a new manager not liking the style or substance of the work that's being done, or it can be much more systematic and targeted as it appears to be in this case. So there's a lot to consider here. But unfortunately, the allegations were quite common. That's an interesting aside to everything else that's going on. Uh, We know that the criminal case has been very delayed by a real lack of of disclosure and not lack in terms of volume. What we know is that by August 5th, 1,500 documents, so we're not talking pages here, we're talking documents, have been given to the defense. And that, and a whole other tranche, which is usually how we talk about disclosure, we use terms of tranches of disclosure, was going to be disclosed in September. But that isn't all of it. And we know and should expect that a lot of that will be redacted because not only the nature of the allegations, but the nature of the relevant material here will be derived from his work at the the pinnacle of national security intelligence within the RCMP. And so we know that the Section 38 proceeding, which is the proceeding under the Canada Evidence Act, has at least started. We know that there is case management going on to figure out how to proceed with adjudicating all the claims of privilege. And that apparently about 1,000 documents have a Section 38 claim to deal with. 
And so, Mike, do you just want to remind everybody what that Section 38 process will look like and how this could impact the criminal proceeding? Sure. So I won't get into too many details, but this is our classic intelligence to evidence bifurcated system that has been such a big part over the years of this podcast. So this is where the disclosure the Stinchcomb requirements for anything that's possibly relevant for the defense must go to the defense. But then under Section 38, you will say if there's anything in there that is potentially injurious to national security, international relations, or national defense, then it won't be disclosed. And that's where you pick the whole process up and you plop it out of the provincial courts and you plop it into the federal courts with probably new lawyers on the government side with a new judge and with probably an amicus, but not with the defense lawyer there. And then they'll make all those determinations about what can be disclosed and not, and then it'll be plopped back into the regular court proceedings with a bunch of individuals who haven't really dealt with that other process, then having to determine what the outcome is. And presumably, usually the outcome is some of it can and some of it can't be disclosed, and you'll have some new information, and we also won't know the rest of it. And so that's time consuming, It's confusing for all the parties, and it's caused problems in the past with respect to the government saying we're just not willing to disclose certain information. And then you have this conflict there between information that we have to keep secret and information that really is relevant to someone's defense, their innocence. One of the really interesting things that struck me in this case that I used to participate in litigation of Section 38 claims both on the government side and also as a clerk. But in this case, the actual accused can fill in the blanks. So even if the information is redacted and disclosed, the reason it's relevant is because it was the subject of this person's work and presumably what it is that he's accused to have handed over. So redacting can only go so far in terms of protecting the information when Obviously, the the man, unless he has a photographic memory, can't remember what's under the black lines of everything on these thousands of documents. But here, the the most sensitive information and the information really at the crux of this case, presumably, Ortiz knows what's under the black lines. So that'll be, I think, a really interesting element to this when we're talking about what the harm is in terms of disclosing this information. So that'll be a fun little turn. I'm really interested to see how that element of things gets litigated within the federal court. I guess the last thing to say is that uh, we can expect this to take a long time and that we shouldn't expect any kind of actual movement in terms of either going to trial or whether or not there's going to be some sort of plea here, which the only other case we've had that's resolved under these offenses did result in a plea deal, but uh, we shouldn't expect to see any of that for quite some time. So as they say on the National Security Law Podcast, this could be a sustaining member of Intrepid for years to come. Okay, moving on. About a year ago, there was another arrest in Kingston this time, a place we've all spent some fabulous years. And we had a Kingston youth who was arrested in January of 2019 after a month-long investigation that involved, as everyone will remember, a low-flying RCMP aircraft that drew the attention of many. The youth ultimately ended up pleading guilty to four offenses, including knowingly facilitating a terrorist activity, counseling someone to use an explosive to cause death or serious bodily injury, possessing explosive materials, and intent to cause an explosion. So we're expecting to see sentencing really any time now. But what we now know from the plea and the agreed statement of fact 
is that the youth was in contact with someone in Syria who was assisting them in attack planning, that the youth then actually did fabricate explosives and had what he needed to build an explosive device, and that his intent was to attack military or police vehicle. And that this all came to be known because unbeknownst to the attack planner in Syria, they put this young man in contact with an undercover FBI agent who then tipped off the RCMP. But it seemed that this young man was quite committed to doing what he was doing. And it was a very swift start to finish investigation. And just Correct me if I'm wrong, but that aircraft had something to do with that swift roundup of this individual, or do we know? The RCMP categorically denies that the aircraft had anything to do with the timing of the arrest. All right, then. So not a a response to the low-flying aircraft reports. Ultimately, this individual is a youth. They should be sentenced under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. Unless the Crown, correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, can convince them, and I believe they're trying to, to convince the judge to charge them as an adult. So what would that ultimately mean and and what does that look like, Mike? I'm going to keep things really general here. What happens is for certain serious violent offenses, you can proceed or try to proceed with a youth as an adult as opposed to as a youth. So it's not going to be the case with all offenses. Obviously, this is terrorism being a serious and violent offense. And what will happen here is there's different principles of sentencing, for example. Not necessarily different. The focus is going to be very much different, right, with youth. So the idea being kids make mistakes and we need to, especially with youth, help them rehabilitate, get better. So the focus in terms of the judgment will be a little bit different as between a youth and an adult. And then the, obviously the seriousness. So youth will usually not go to jail, for example. This, I would presume part of this is because we're talking jail time. Jess. This case is really interesting because it parallels another case that happened in Canada a few years ago, and that was the case of Banasawi. In both cases, the FBI played a pivotal role in terms of alerting the RCMP to the individuals. The outcomes, though, were really different. So in the Banasawi case, he was eventually allowed to travel or potentially encouraged to travel down to the United States where he was arrested by the FBI, was ultimately convicted of criminal offenses and serving a very long jail sentence in the United States, despite pretty significant mental health issues. In this case, though, We see a similar sort of initiation for the investigation, the involvement of FBI from the get-go, but the RCMP in this case has charged the individual in Canada. And I know that the RCMP took a lot of heat in terms of the Banasawi case for how that played out. And so I'm hopeful that in this case, this demonstrates a shift in strategies and tactics in terms of people who are preparing to engage in acts of violence in Canada and using our legal system to deal with them. Do you think that symbolizes a shift in trust between the FBI and the RCMP or the FBI's trust in the RCMP being capable of um, managing these issues or that the RCMP just clearly took a hold of this case much more quickly? In my experience, the FBI is always keen to take the lead on the investigation. And they do in a number of jurisdictions and will encourage partners to allow them to do that. So I really suspect that this is the RCMP that has made the decision to take the lead here and to 
have a clear strategy. And I hope that demonstrates uh, a maturing of our counterterrorism policy. Just to add, the crux of the defenses in this place are all in Kingston, right? In this person's home in Kingston. So um, pretty clear geographic connection to us and us taking responsibility. Okay, we'll look to see how this resolves in terms of sentencing. But it seems to be for all of the criticism that they take in terms of terrorism prosecutions to be a pretty successful investigation and prosecution on behalf of the RCMP, the security services involved and the Crown. The, the thing that was interesting about this case is it does seem to have been a very quick investigation, but that happens. There are a few individuals who will be radicalized and then will start to take action and escalate that activity very quickly. So while it may seem to people that he got quite far down the pathway of planning and preparing for some sort of incident, the fact that it was intercepted ahead of time is a very big win, especially when you have a mobilization process that appears to be pretty short. A very different case is that of Kevin Omar Mohammed. Mike, he traveled to Syria in 2014, not to travel and participate with ISIS, but apparently um, to affiliate with Jabhat al-Nusra. And he was ultimately convicted and released from prison in 2019. But we find Mr. Mohammed back on a terrorism peace bond because the RCMP believe that he poses a risk to public safety. Have we ever seen this before, Mike, where someone who's been charged and released for terrorism? One example is one of the individuals from the notorious Toronto 18 group out of Toronto and, and the, the arrests in 2006. That individual got out of jail and actually traveled abroad and according to reports was killed abroad. So uh, did re-engage. In terms of recidivism, one thing I do want to bring up perhaps is the really great research by a colleague of both of ours and friend of both of ours, uh, Reem Zaya. She's done a lot of access to information requests and other research on what's happening in the CVE space in prisons in Canada. And so one of the things that we have seen thus far is no programming in prisons. And so if you put some of the research that a bunch of us have done together, what you end up with is individuals getting fairly large, fairly long prison sentences, but not so long that they've aged out when they eventually get out. So most of them will be getting out in prison. Most of them will be getting out at an age where at least for terrorism, they would still, in theory, by the numbers, be at risk of recidivism, where they, in prison, haven't received any specific programming with respect to their beliefs or affiliations. So nothing available in prison. And so that is an ongoing concern for Canadians in the system. That seems to be what's happened here. Speaking of people who go into jail and then come out, Raid Jasser, who was one of the two men originally convicted in 2015 of terrorism offenses in the so-called Via Rail plot, we learned has just been granted bail. And I say bail and not parole or release because that conviction was ultimately overturned. So the both Ray Jesser and Chea Besseguer were convicted in 2015 for multiple terrorism offenses given very long sentences, I believe both at least life sentences. But ultimately, Jasser's convictions were appealed on a variety of grounds. 
And ultimately what happened was one of those grants was about the jury selection process. And because that kind of undergirded the entire trial, if the jury selection process was flawed, then the whole court was improperly constituted. And the defense counsel argued effectively the whole trial should be thrown out and redone. Although there was multiple grounds for appeal, that one individual issue was hived off, dealt with by the Court of Appeal first, and ultimately that appeal was successful and allowed. And in finding that the court was improperly constituted because of the failure to abide by the appropriate process for jury selection, the convictions were overturned and a new trial was ordered for for both. Now, it's important to say that these men have been incarcerated since 2013. And even after a new trial was ordered, and even though there were multiple grounds for appeal, this is only just one of them, the prosecutors have decided to appeal to the Supreme Court. So now we have two proceedings in parallel. We have the appeal of this one element of the appeal moving forward to the Supreme Court. And then we also have the fact that people need to be preparing to retry this case again, because either, and Mike, you can jump in here if I'm wrong, if the prosecutors, if the Crown's successful at the Supreme Court, they're going to have to return to the Court of Appeal to deal with all the rest of the original grounds for appeal from the trial. And then that new retrial will stop or the Supreme Court will uphold the Court of Appeal's finding that the court was improperly constituted and that new retrial will begin. So there's a lot going on here. But in the meantime, both Jasser and Essegare, who are now technically not guilty of an offense, have been in prison since 2013. And Mr. Jasser made an application for bail, which was at first instance denied. That denial went up to the Court of Appeal. And we know now that Mr. Jasser has been granted a bail. We can't discuss any of the reasons for that because of a publication ban. And I I know I'm going on and on about this, but the interesting thing here is that Jasser would have been eligible for day parole this spring and would be eligible for full parole about the time we would expect this new trial to start. So this case has had a long and winding road, and who knows how this will impact Essegare as well, whether or not he will seek bail. But both men are going to be retried, judge alone, unless the Crown is successful in their appeal to the Supreme Court, which is scheduled to be heard on October 7th. That was a lot of me talking. Mike, do you want to jump in on anything? The only thing I'd jump in on, because it was a little bit of a a controversy, it's often a controversy in Canada, and it was in the last six months in Calgary, and that is about bail and when you get bail. The test is quite clear in Canada. We have a number of Supreme Court cases that sort of interpret our provisions, which make that test clear. But overwhelmingly, the idea is that there is not an offense for which you don't get bail. So it's the extent to which, putting in the layman's terms, the extent to which the individual is an actual threat and whether that can be managed in another way. So even if they are maybe possibly a threat, if that can be managed by house arrest rather than jail, then that's the default. The default is not the person is in jail, no matter what the offense is. And the idea is that you should be able to get bail no matter what the offense is. And the reason for that is really simple. You're just charged with something. You're not guilty with anything. 
So you're, we're not saying that you've been charged with murder, therefore you should be in jail because it's a really bad offense. What if the charge is baseless? So the idea is your starting point is they will be released. And so that's what's happened here. That is not, I think, as big a deal as some people might make it out to be because absolutely it's possible to get bail in terrorism as it is in any other crime. And the default is to get bail. And in this case, as you say, the conditions are going to be rather strict. So it's not just they are free to walk on the street. You're talking about all the sorts of things you might be thinking about. House arrest, you have to be back on time. You might have to have an ankle bracelet. You might have to check in with, with an individual and so on. What do you make of the decision by the Crown to proceed to the Supreme Court of Canada on the jury selection issue, knowing that even if they win, they're still going to have to go back to another round of appeals. Let me throw another thing that into that mix, which makes it extra interesting, which is that they've now removed from the criminal code the option to proceed in the way that they were wrongfully allowed to in the first instance. So what does that mean? It means that this must be on principle or in order to ensure that you have a conviction because there are implications to a conviction. The, the person has it then on their criminal record. There's When someone gets out, they could be declared a dangerous offender in some cases. There's also implications for immigration status. I know Mr. Jasser, I believe, is just a permanent resident and that could be stripped as a result of this uh, conviction as well. Right. So there's all sorts of other reasons to appeal, uh, but it is not about, as you say, it's, it's not really about jail time because the jail time is we're almost up now in terms of what one of the individuals would have been in jail for. And it's not about upholding a bad ruling or what they might crown might perceive to be a wrong ruling on a element of the criminal code because parliament has already removed that from the criminal code. Given the, the full length that this could take, right? Conceivably, we could see it going up to the Supreme Court and coming back down, or again, a conviction overturned and, and an order for a new retrial. And even at best, I think they're thinking it's more than a year from now before they would even start a trial again. So if these individuals would have been available to be released on parole by the time we get to the new trial, is there a public interest in relitigating what was an extremely lengthy and costly trial? Or should we just say bygones and let everybody walk away? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I imagine they'll be parsing that really closely and, and all the way up to the AG, because if you proceed again, you're presumably, I, I would guess, for terrorism offenses, you have to get sign off. So long discussion internally about whether it's in the public interest. And they're going to they're gonna think about all those things that you normally think about in the public interest, right? Cost and length, is it fair to the individuals? Does it send a message of deterrence, denunciation? Is there a rehabilitation prospect with proceeding or with not proceeding? Has the sentence already been served? Has the punishment already been meted out? All that kind of stuff will go into that consideration. And it's a good question what they'll, where they'll come down on that one. And there's other complexities in this case too. This was, it was a serious threat, but the, there were a lot of issues at trial, including, including at sentencing with respect to the mental health of one of the accused, that sort of thing too. So there's a lot going on here. Not to forget the very fun fact that the undercover officer at issue in this since wrote a tell all about this case. So that throws another fun <laughs> element into the story. <laughs> so I guess the rule for those vetting FBI informant tell-alls in the future is to make sure that all available appeals have been exhausted before you allow publication. That brings us to the end of our roundup. It has been an interesting summer in terms of terrorism. I guess, Mike, in terms of 
trends in terms of numbers, there's nobody who has looked at these issues more than you have. And I compel everyone to go and read uh, Mike Nesbitt's scholarship empirically looking at sentencing and charging and terrorism cases. But it, do you have any big takeaways from what you've seen unravel over the last four or five months? Yeah, we've seen some interesting things which were contrary in the last year, really, to trends we had seen before. First of all, we have seen at least one other woman arrested, and our arrests of women uh, for terrorism offenses has been quite low in Canada, low as compared to most other offenses. So I, I think our sort of arrest rate, male versus female, looks a lot like murder. So it does look like some other serious offenses, but it doesn't look like the international numbers either. It's just not what you'd expect. So there was always some question about why that was. Like, is Canada different? Is it the offenses uh, that we're looking at are for some reason being treated differently or the activities of the individuals? Um, or is it that we're not taking seriously the threat of women? I'll just jump in there because I've been doing my own research, funded thankfully by TSAS. So we should give a, a shout out to TSAS that the majority too, of so women. Thank you, TSAS. <laughs> in Canada that have been arrested, and that includes the most recent, at least, charge here in Canada have been people who have been arrested with their partners, which is a really interesting trend that I haven't actually seen play out in other jurisdictions like the United States or Australia. Yeah, and just to add to that, we, we know that the numbers of female involvement in terrorism internationally is much higher than what we're prosecuting in Canada, as I said. And we know that we have, or we suspect that we have, a number of individuals that have left Canada that have either returned or are still over there that didn't seem to, at least on what might be known, have left with a partner or someone else. So in other words, women doing it of their own accord. So seeing another arrest has been one of the, getting back to your original question, that's been one of the interesting things. Seeing the arrests of the individuals for traveling, but based on information collected abroad or activities that took place abroad, that we've seen four of those in the last year, that's the first time. Uh, we had zero far-right extremist arrests over the first 19 years or so of our terrorism offenses. And in the past year, we have seen one for, depending on where you put on the spectrum, uh, an incel. We have seen our first arrest, so we're broadening our horizons in terms of what ideologies we're bringing into the terrorism tent, which you don't want more terrorism charges on the one hand for a variety of reasons. On the other hand, it should be available if it's an ideological motive and a serious plan or offense, then it should be open to a variety of ideologies. So that I think for many people has been very interesting to see, and it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years how that plays out in terms of our prosecution of that individual. And presumably we're going to have an expert on incels who are going to be able to talk about that as an ideology that motivated the murder in that case. Lots of really interesting trends evolving here, and I hope we'll continue to watch them. We will definitely continue to talk about them because we're geeks like that. And then we'll hope that everybody continues to listen to us geek out over these really interesting, really complex investigations and prosecutions. I want to thank Jess Davis, although she's already signed off, and Mike Nesbitt for joining me on this two-parter. We hope you all enjoyed it and that you'll listen again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.